Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us live is Karen Freeland. She's a recovering or recovered fully corporate workaholic. After years in high-pressure leadership roles at Fortune 500 companies, she traded it all in to follow her passions. Now she's an author and life coach, and she helps women transform their lives and bring dreams to reality. So everybody, please welcome Karen. And Karen, hello. Hi. It's great to be alive and be here with you today. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm just very excited for this interview. You have so many awesome things that you cover just in your own biography and explanation of what you do. But then also, I think, especially since COVID, this is just something that people are really starting to pay attention to, which is workaholism. So uh, before we jump into all that, my standard three questions I always ask every guest are, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? Yeah, sure. So I'm 41 this year. And I am right on the cusp of the millennial Gen Xer. So I definitely have some millennial tendencies, but if I had to pick one, I am a Gen Xer through and through, as evidenced by that lovely uh, workaholism behavior. And I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, uh, Vestal, New York, right outside of Binghamton. Or if you don't know that, it's about an hour south of Syracuse. So most people know Syracuse. Awesome. Well, we actually have a lot in common. I'm just turned 40, so we're about the same age. I would answer the same question about generation. And uh, I used to live in Ithaca, so I'm familiar with both Binghamton and Syracuse. I love Ithaca. We used to go up to Cayuga Lake every summer. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Um, in the summer, especially. That's a good, good time to go. Um, cool. Well, so I guess the first question I kind of want to get into is like your life story of on the way up to workaholism. So why don't you kind of walk us through that? Sure. So I don't even know how I got into corporate, to be honest. Um, that wasn't the plan. I graduated college with a dance degree. I moved to Miami and spent two years there chasing my dreams. Um, starring, not starring. I mean, I wish I was starring. I was, uh, you know, background and had a, a small bit part in the movie from Justin to Kelly. Um, I was in a horror flick called Passing Fancy and had a supporting role playing the character of Gal. And I was really just kind of like loving life and moved to New York City after a couple of years and thought, well, hey, if I could do this in Miami, I can do this in New York City. Let's go for it. And followed my dream there for a few years until I realized, wow, I'm, I'm 24 years old and I have about $24 in the bank this doesn't seem like a good long-term plan. So I decided that I was going to go into corporate for one year, make as much money as I could, and then quit and go back to acting. So I didn't have to wait tables anymore because it was really hard waiting tables. And then, you know, you're, you're trying to be available for the audition, but then you have a shift the day it shoots. And it was just constantly felt like it was getting in the way of me really living my dreams. Well, Fast forward to the first uh, month I got my commission check and it had four numbers on it. Turns out I was pretty good at sales, had never seen so much money on a paycheck in my life. And I thought, well, shit, I'm rich. This is fantastic. <laughs> and I went right down to the coach store, bought a bunch of purses and an iPad holder or iPod, I guess it was at the time, iPod holder and a, like some gloves or something. 
and the rest is history. Got addicted to the money drug and working my way up through the corporate ladder and spent, you know, 16 years at uh, Fortune 500 brands from everything from training and development, operations, marketing. I was chief of staff for a bit of time. And all of a sudden just kind of woke up one day and was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? How did I even get here? I hate this life. This isn't what I signed up for. I'm working 24 seven. I don't really have any friends anymore that, you know, I actually like keep in touch with on a regular basis. I, I have like a shell of a marriage and I just was like, how did I even get here? I didn't even recognize myself. And real, real quick, uh, I want to hear the rest, but uh, how old were you when you had that first little wake up call? You know, it was kind of off and on between 2016 to 2019. So 2016 is when I was chief of staff. And I distinctly remember one day I was in a meeting and I, I had to get up for some reason and I, I excused myself from the meeting and I was walking down the corridor and the door to get into the C-suite was glass and it was propped open and I could see myself perfectly in this glass door as I, my image as I was approaching it. And I just had this moment where I thought, who is that? Who is that person in the mirror with the dark hair and the all black dress and the heels and like looking so serious and so stressed out and overworked? Like what happened to fun, Karen? Where did she go? Where is that fighting spirit that had just somehow gotten lost? And you know, there were moments where I just, I think I dove into workaholism somewhat because of imposter syndrome. You know, I felt like, well, if, if I'm not going to be the most talented person in the room, I'll be the hardest working. And then maybe they'll overlook my shortcomings. Um, you know, but you don't get to be chief of staff without some serious business credentials. You know what I mean? It's not like they just let anybody into those kinds of roles. And yet, even with a title like that, I still felt this sense of not belonging. And I think some of the workaholism came from... Um, you know, conditioning, um, seeing years of my dad, he went back to school um, when I was in high school. And so I would come home from school and he'd get home from work. And then after dinner, he'd go to the dining room table and he would work for a couple of hours to get through his MBA. And I think some of that probably carried forward with me. And then some of the workaholism, I think, was just not wanting to deal with life. You know, if, if things weren't going well with my marriage or I was having trouble managing the kids, it was like, I'm just going to work then. I'll just put myself into work. I, I know how to do that. And it was almost like an escape for me. So I didn't have to deal with other things that were going on. Totally. I mean, this resonates so well with me. And how many of us, like specifically from our generation, have that story of like, oh, I just thought I'd make a couple paychecks and then get out and do something else. And then, yeah, um, we, have, we have similar trajectories, different outcomes. But um, I'm interested in the 10 years, actually, of before that first moment that, you know, you kind of saw yourself in the reflection and looked so serious. So, I mean, just for 10 years straight, you just did like the normal thing. Yeah, I'm assuming you got married. You said you had children, uh, you were working. Yeah, it was so like status quo. And, and there were times, don't get me wrong, there were times that were really exciting. And, you know, when you're part of a business that's growing it, and times are good, it can be really fun to work in corporate. You know, we had parties and we had appreciations and we got big bonuses. And I was like, man, this is the life. And then the last, I want to say four or five years of my corporate career, 
were all part of organizations that were downsizing, restructuring, losing money. And it was this constant looking over your shoulder going, when's the shoe going to drop? When am I the one that's going to get canned? You know, like just not feeling uh, valued. And that really turned into this lack of fulfillment. You know, it, being in marketing was tough. Like the first person to get blamed when sales isn't doing well or things aren't going well is marketing. And I worked in really toxic organizations that allowed sales and, and other uh, leaders to bully up on marketing. And that was just part of the culture. And it was toxic. And it was definitely part of what drove me to the edge of it, of being like, I'm done. And what's what's to me so fascinating about your story is it's it's unlike most that I hear, actually. It's very different in that you were following your dreams prior to all that. You really were. You were like moving to New York City, you know, so it's like, it's interesting that you got derailed at the second step, whereas most people don't even get on the first step. And actually to kind of figure out how you were on that first step, I'd like to go way back in time and just ask you, were you raised religiously or did you have any sort of like theological or spiritual uh, feelings as you first became an actress? Oh, for sure. I mean, I grew up Episcopal and uh, we went to church every Sunday. You know, there was no missing it. Like it, it, unless you were like literally on your deathbed, um, you know, we went to church. My parents always said like, the least you can do is give God one hour of your time, like during the week, like don't even play, like we're going. Um, and I grew up in Sunday school and, you know, I made my communion and, um, I do think it was a, a great foundation for me. I'm very, I feel blessed that my parents raised me with a religious component. Because it's just, for me, it just became part of like good values and understanding like how to treat people. And um, so I, I'm really glad that I had that spiritual connection. Um, but of course, like most people, you know, I, I grew up and I kind of wanted to do my own thing. I was a bit of a rebel without a cause. I was just like, <laughs> you're going to try to tell me what to do? No. Okay. Oh, I shouldn't drink? I'm going to. Oh, I shouldn't party and stay up late? Okay, I'm going to. Like, you say don't do it. And I'm like figuring out as quickly as possible how I can do that thing that I'm not supposed to do. But I really didn't have a reason <laughs> to rebel. Yeah, yeah. Like we were totally like middle class. Like I had no issues. I didn't come from an abusive home. I mean, like it couldn't have been more vanilla and healthy than like, it was just so average, you know, it was just was. Um, and I fell away from it for a while, but like in college, I don't think I went to church once, except maybe when I came home on a break with my parents or for Christmas or something. But um, it was interesting because when I moved to Florida, I did find a church and I would go on Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. all by myself. Which is, and I just remember feeling so overcome um, when I would go and just it reminded me of my grandparents. Um, and and I just I felt so at home there and had such a sense of peace. Wow, that's really cool. Um... So yeah, I can tell that you're, you know, walking in both worlds, the the literally the corporate one and then also the spiritual one. So I think now is actually a good time to ask our only other standard question, which is what exactly do you think happens when you die? And what's your imagination of literally what's going to happen to you when the lights go out? Yeah. And I think maybe even to back up a little bit, just for your listeners, um, what, what happened for me in 2019, which was the epitome of my midlife crisis was we had two deaths in the family. So November of 2018, um, we had the first one. And then four months later, we had the next one. 
And it was the end of a generation. So I was acutely aware that next up on deck was my parents' generation. And then guess who's up after that? Me. And it set off these alarm bells in me that was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. And I've never really looked at it that way before, like that realization that, you know, my time here is finite. And what am I doing with my life? Like, am I really just going to work in a corporation and make PowerPoint presentations for the rest of my life? Like, this cannot be my purpose. This, this can't be why I'm here. So I started having um, massive panic attacks. I would literally wake up in the middle of the night. And for some reason, my brain would do this thing where I would, I would go to the bathroom because I was drinking a lot also to, to cope with the workaholism and the stress. And so I'd wake up and have to go to the bathroom because, you know, I've had two babies. So my bladder has like a 30 minute capacity. And so I'd get up and I'd go to the bathroom, but it would be dark and I wouldn't want to turn the light on and kind of like bother my eyes. So we had like a really, really dim, like little switch. So it would just give you like a little bit of a glow enough to see. And my mind would start to wander and I would think, wow, I've just been sleeping and, and now I've woken up and I'm in this space and this world around me is turning and everything's happening. But while I was sleeping, it's almost like I was dead. Is this what it's going to be like when I die? Will there just be black nothingness? And for a moment, I really could see myself almost floating in a sea of nothingness. And the feeling would become so real. I would have an all out panic attack. I would start bawling my eyes out freaking out that I can't stop this. This is going to happen. I'm going to die. And there's nothing I can do to prevent it. And meanwhile, my husband is sleeping in the other like feet away from me in our master bedroom. And I'm like too scared to tell him he's going to come in here any moment and be like, what the hell? You're a head case, Karen. Like what is wrong with you? And so I would just sit there in the mirror and go get it together, get it together. Come on. We can't do this right now. We got to go back to bed. And then of course I would lay there for you know, hours stressing out about my own demise. And I think I didn't, I didn't think I know what happened. You know, I'd always been taught, well, there's a heaven. And so I was like, well, if I believe in heaven, then why am I so scared of death? Why do I think it's going to be this black, dark nothingness? And I had to really have an examination of my own faith. Like, do I really believe that? What is going on in me? that I am so incredibly terrified of death. And this went on for like way too many months, way, way, way too many months until one morning, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I came out of the bathroom crying and I woke up my husband. And of course he was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> He's freaking out. And I was like, shit, dude, like, are you okay? Are you dying? Like, what is, like, he really had no idea what was going on. And I'm like, just shut up and let me talk. I have to tell you something. And he was like, oh my gosh, but, he couldn't help me, you know, and I think that's one of the things that's been such a big learning for anyone who's going through a midlife crisis or struggling with their, the idea of death is that no one else can actually help you because it has to come from within and it has to be your own beliefs and, and your own um, sort of mindset shift. So they can give you resources and they can give you tools, but you have to actually work through this on your own. So he really struggled feeling helpless for, for some time until 
I kind of learned, I, I said, this is enough. Like, I can't live like this anymore. I can't live in this midlife crisis. I can't live with these panic attacks. Like something has to change. And so I didn't even know this was a technique, but it's called rewiring your brain. And I would go into the bathroom. And as soon as my mind would start to do this thing, like, this is what it's going to be like when you die, there'll be nothing visible. I would just immediately start thinking anything else. Oh, I got to empty the trash can. I should paint my nails. They might be chipping. Like I wouldn't even have nail polish on, but I would just say anything to get my mind not to go there anymore. And eventually I kind of broke that chain that like my brain said, okay, we're going to the bathroom at night. It, it's time to have a panic attack. Um, and I stopped drinking as much so that I wouldn't wake up in the middle of the night. And as I started making all these changes, um, I realized like I actually have the power to control my life. And I, I think I need to look into the whole death thing a little bit more, but maybe if I had a sense of purpose and I was doing something I really enjoyed, I wouldn't feel so scared about death because I wouldn't feel like I'm going to have all these regrets. So that's when I started writing uh, my memoir. I decided that I wanted to write a book. Um, I don't know if, we're, if I can say the title. Oh, yeah, yeah, please, please. People might feel it's a little racy, but um, it's just anatomically correct terms. So it's called The Ins and Outs of My Vagina, a penetrating memoir. Awesome. It is awesome. It's awesome. It's a close look at what it's really like to be a woman and all the mishaps and misadventures that we have with our bodies over the course of, in this case, 40 years. And as I started writing that, I just got so excited and energized that eventually I was like, okay, I'm done with corporate. I'm going to go become a life coach and I'm going to teach other women the process of how they can actually reinvent their life as well. It's been a journey. Yeah, no. And I'm so glad you answered it in the order you did. Um, so, okay. I have like 15 follow-up questions, but I wrote notes, so don't worry. I'll be able to ask them, <laughs> but uh, can you, can you really quickly just succinctly tell me what like currently is your position on what you think will happen when you die? Yeah. So I read the book, um, overcoming your fear of death. And I wish I could remember the author right now, but that really helped me put into perspective, Karen, if you think that there is a heaven, then you have nothing to fear. So I truly believe that when we depart, our souls are going to leave this earthly body and go to heaven. And then we're going to continue to exist up there in heaven. Um, so I read the book also, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven. And that gave me some reassurance as well and comfort, really, because that's what I really needed was that comfort that, you know, there is this afterlife. And so based on the evidence and, um, you know, the Bible studies that I've been doing lately, um, which has really helped, like I've really come to terms with um, my, my heavenly path. So do you think when you die, like, of a, let's just make it as pleasant as possible. You're lying in bed, your children are at your bedside, you're elderly everything went well, you're happy, you don't want to leave, but you know you have to. What do you think happens like the moment consciousness, quote unquote, leaves you or not leaves you? Like, what do you think will like, do you literally go as Karen to a place called heaven? And then you're Karen there? You know, I don't know. I don't know that we still have our like earthly shell. Like I don't, I don't really, I think I, in my head, I would love to envision that, right? I love this idea of getting to the pearly white gate and seeing my grandparents and hugging them and they're in the bodies that I remember them being, or maybe they're just young and vibrant. Um, I think that that's a beautiful idea, but I don't know that that's realistically what happens. Um, one of the ideas that I've 
sort of been grappling with lately is like, maybe it's just whatever we think it is. Maybe it's like, I'm going to manifest it. So maybe if I just go with that image, then I can manifest that that's what's going to happen. I, I love that answer. And then I'd actually like to flip it on its side and ask you, is it possible then that we're also just manifesting this and this is actually our heaven? Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. My son actually said that to me the other day. That's so crazy that you say that. He's like, mom, what if this is the heaven? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, It totally could be. Let's just enjoy it then. Stop fighting with your brother. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. And, it, and I think whatever... I guess my new philosophy is just like, I'm going to love whatever is being thrown at me right now, whatever I'm actually experiencing, like, how can I love on that? And if I don't love it, how can I change it? How can I make it something that I love? Because life is just too short to sit there and be miserable. I already tried that. It doesn't work. Don't do that. <laughs> that's awesome. And actually, that's a great point to pivot on. And I, I just, that's partway through the interview, but I, I mean, I love your attitude. So you're very fun <laughs> you. and energetic. And I definitely can see why people would hire you. Have you ever, um, actually, this is a totally random question, but have you been hired by a corporation to ironically speak about leaving corporate life? <laughs> No. So um, most corporations are like terrified to work with me because I'm pretty vocal on LinkedIn. And, you know, that like if it's not working, like leave. But I, honestly, I would say 80% of the women that I actually coach that come to me and hire me are hiring me to get promoted within their organization. Not, not everyone wants to leave and start their own business and make the midlife leap like I did, which is totally cool. I can help you at least create that balance in your life and get your priorities back in order so that you don't end up in workaholism land and end up in, you know, midlife crisis bill a few years later. Because the reality is you're going to burn out. So even if you're not burnt out right now today, it's coming. It's just waiting there and lurking for the worst possible moment in your life to pop up and be like, hey, we're going to have a midlife crisis now. And you don't want that. So how do we head that off? Yeah, I was actually... Really curious about um, what it's like to be in a midlife crisis and have your partner not be in one. Yeah. And then, and no, I'm not speaking from personal experience. It's actually the opposite. I'm more curious what, how you would explain to someone else both sides of that and how your husband was able to help or not help, but still for you to stay in the marriage. Yeah. So much patience. Honestly, it was so hard for him. And, and I needed patience with him too, because I wanted him to ask me, like, Karen, how are you doing? What can I do to take the burden off your plate? But, like, he didn't even know what to do or how to ask me. And I remember it was, like, a couple of weeks after I had had my breakdown with him and told him everything that I'd been feeling. And we were in the car driving. Like, the kids are in the back seat. He's like, so I just want to check in. Like, how's your mental health? You good? And I was like, dude, what the how can you even ask me that? First of all, I don't want to talk about this in front of the kids. Second of all, it's not like, do you want to go get ice cream? Like, this is my, my whole, like, but he was so clueless and he just didn't understand. What has been really interesting is that he had his, I think, part, like a mini midlife crisis, I will say, um, earlier this year. This year has been a big, or I guess now it was 2021, but we had a big, big change. We packed up our whole family and moved from New Jersey to South Carolina. We lost our dog of almost 16 years. Um, his parents are aging and he's kind of seeing that now. And he started a new job and doesn't know anyone here in Greenville. Like it's been a massive change for him. 
And he absolutely 100% started feeling like, okay, everything's upside down. Is this what I really want? Like, am I happy? What is going on? And he was really struggling. The beautiful thing was, is I knew how to support him. I knew how to coach him through that and how to ask him the right questions and how to back off when he just needed time, how to just be there and support, not try to fix everything, but just really like sit there and hold him sometimes and just tell him everything was going to be okay. And if you want to talk about it, I'm here and, and just be that, that rock that he needed someone to be. Um, but it's tough because everybody's midlife crisis manifests a little bit differently. You know, some people go out and they get the new wife or the fancy car. I mean, I bought a Benz. Um, I get it. Right. Like it was like, if I'm going to die, I got to use this money up. Like I can't take it with me. Like, why don't I have fancy things? Um, and then it, you know, three months later, you're like, oh, well, that was cool for a minute, but I'm still not happy. That didn't fix it. Yeah. I have different questions I want to ask, but I think we kind of switched to a subject that I think will be far more interesting for our audience, which is the gender balances and imbalances in like contemporary American society. So I am sequestering this conversation to our local culture because it's too hard if I involve other countries. But um, sure. so as, as important, relevant background information, while I would like to call myself a feminist, I know that's pretty silly, but I did go to a all women's school for graduate studies where they reluctantly allow men to like sit in the back and listen. And uh, <laughs> that experience changed my life. And so it is, it's very eye-opening to me. And that, that experience happened when I was 27. So it was 13 years ago. But, it, you know, I still see the world through two lenses now. I see them through, of course, my male eyes, which will never change. But then also this added filter. So I'm kind of curious in, like, when you said the title of your book, I find that hilarious, not offensive. But I know exactly why you prefaced it with this might sound offensive. Where do you think we're headed with the gender balance? Meaning, like, do you think things are tipping in either direction too far? Or do you think we're actually on a really good path? Oh, gosh, I'm so torn, to be honest, like there's times where I feel like, oh, my gosh, we're making so much progress. And then there's other times where I'm like, are you kidding me, Instagram, you blocked all my ads because they, the book says vagina. Like, really, are we so childish that we can't use an anatomically correct word? Um, you know, I think some of it's just perspective, like, where was my mom's generation? You know, like my mom stayed home. She didn't work. And that was her choice. She she didn't want to work, right? She wanted to be a mom. She wanted to stay home and raise the kids. And that's beautiful. You know, but I think about today, like women have so much choice. We can work. We cannot work. We can do whatever we want. But there was a time where women didn't have a choice. You didn't work. You couldn't work. There was not an option for you to work. And if you did, it was like frowned upon or, you know, you had very limited roles. Um, you know, today a woman can be a CEO. Are there enough? No. Do we have more work to do? Of course. But I just, I try to operate from a place of gratitude because I think there's so many things in the world we could get mad about and we could get upset about. But if you're not doing something actively to change it, then just sitting around and being pissed off isn't a very useful uh, way to spend your energy. So I try to just look at the things that are great and then go, well, what can I change? I can change by being really vocal about my book and about women's health issues and busting stigmas around periods and orgasms and most in most women's cases, lack of orgasm. Um, and just talk about these important issues 
hoping that, you know, by the time our kids grow up and get to be my age, they'll, they'll have new issues to tackle and it won't have to be the ones that I'm tackling today. Yeah, that was kind of my last question for you was about children. Um, I believe you said you have two boys. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So I have one son and one daughter. And so I'm constantly thinking like, well, hold on. I want to uphold feminism and make sure this world is, you know, much better for my daughter. And then I'm like, but... I don't want to tip this against my son. Like I need both of them. So do you ever feel that pressure having two sons? Like, do you ever worry about the future for men? And I know I'm I'm not couching this question. No, I do very much. So I figure, you know, I see things like the future is female and this is going to be an unpopular opinion for a lot of people, but I think, well, then where does that leave my boys? If the future is female, well, well, why can't the future just be human? Can we just, can we just have that? Can we just aim for equality? Um, I don't think men have to lose for women to win. That's just my opinion. I think there's room for everybody. Um, and I think there's room for everybody to show up and authentically be themselves. Um, I'm personally really attracted to masculine men. Um, like I love that my husband's in construction. I love when he comes dirty, home dirty. You know, I love that he takes out the trash and I do the laundry. Like that works for me in my house. That might not work in someone else's house. So I'd love to see us get to a place where we just go like whatever works for you, right? Like, why do you, why do I have to tell you to be different or you tell me to be different? Because if that doesn't work for you, then why would I want to force you into what works in my little box? You know what I mean? Oh, I, I more than understand what you mean. And this has been a fantastic interview. Um, we are running out of time, but I always leave my guests the last word. So please, you have the floor. What would you like to say to our audience? Awesome. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I would just say if anyone is struggling, if you feel stuck, I want to encourage you to just look inward because you have all the answers inside of you. I knew from many years before I actually pulled the trigger that I wasn't happy in corporate, that it wasn't the life that I wanted to live. But I felt like, you know, I was the breadwinner and I had to keep doing this. It was the responsible thing to do. But there are always alternatives and there are always ways to live your best life and a life that you really love. So I hope that everyone will take that to heart. And if anyone needs support, of course, you could check me out on my website, karenfreeland.com and go get the book. It's available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Awesome. And uh, yeah, of course the notes will include the links to both her website and uh, her book, but I would encourage people to bypass the censorship and get that book and read it. And uh, yeah. Karen, I want to just thank you so much. You've helped us put another nail in the coffin, and that's all we're trying to do here. And uh, thank you for getting into progressive, not politics, but whatever word I'm supposed to use there, because it's it's really fascinating. And I think, you know, you have a very fair and balanced look, and that's probably no coincidence because you're exactly in the fair and balanced middle portion of your life. So um, I wish you many, many, many great future years, and I want to thank you again for coming on the show and helping us deal with death and life, of course. And for our guests listening at home, once again, this is Mike Oppenheim. You've been listening to Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon. You are my moon.